quite a bit to, to start with. Um, and we've actually done the last two weeks, for those of you who listen to the podcast, we've done the last two weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 um, because we introed this section and then I went back last week and talked specifically about the nine gifts of the Spirit that Paul lists here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're really going to kind of go back yet again uh, today and start back with 12.1 because this is such a significant piece of Scripture, particularly if you're doing Christianity today in the modern world. The whole charismatic Pentecostal renewal movement literally began in the late late 1800s. They, it was birthed out of Methodism, for those of you in the room uh, that are Methodists. It was birthed out of our movement. Um, and then it began literally almost, we know the moment, in 1900. There may be some significance to the turning of that year. And then we have been in a um, uh, century plus now of, of what is becoming worldwide a Christian movement that is predominantly charismatic Pentecostal. Uh, if you go south of the border, if you go south of the equator, uh, I don't care if you go to the Anglican Church, Episcopal Church, Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, they're going, from your perspective, they're going to ask, act Pentecostal. Um, you know, for those of you, and I know several of you have here in the room, if you've been like on mission trips to Puerto Rico, this church had a history of mission trips to Puerto Rico. If you've been on mission trips to Puerto Rico and you've been down there and you've worshipped with um, uh, Methodists in, in the Dominican Republic, you come away thinking, they're Pentecostal. Um, well, yes and no. Let me give you a quick, and I apologize to those of you that have been listening carefully to podcasts, because this is review, but review is always good. So let me give you the background of What's, ha- what's happening in the world today that makes 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 so important. Um, and we'll see how far we can get today. But just to get us all on the same page. You know, it was the people called Methodist. And if you're not Methodist, I can help you get over that. But um, <laughs> it was the people called Methodist in the 18th century who began to talk about Conversion to Christ, and then something else. Something else, post-conversion to Christ. Um, and it depends on what, what point in our history you're at to see how that, how that discussion went. Uh, but it always had something, we called it in the 18th century Christian perfection, which was our term for Christian maturity. We talked about going on to perfection. What it boiled down to was this, and there's going to be lots of different ways to discuss it, but what it boils down to is this. After you give your sins to Jesus Christ, that's conversion. You, you, you need to, because most of us don't do this simultaneously, um, you, you need to get to the point where you give your life to Jesus Christ. Um, you, you can receive him as Savior, find pardon for your sins and guilt and you know all that kind of relief. But there comes a point where you have to deal with the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, another way of saying it is, you know, we, we almost universally now in the body of Christ say that 
and you're going to see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 too, by the way, you can't even convert to Christ without the Spirit making that a possibility. Uh, you cannot say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's going to tell you at the beginning of chapter 12. That earliest Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. You, you, you can't even become engrafted in the body of Christ without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we almost universally say that um, you know, if, you, if you're Christians, you have the Holy Spirit because it takes the Holy Spirit to, to, to cause the new birth to happen. It takes the Holy Spirit to cause you to be engrafted into the body of Christ. Well, as we Methodist types in the 18th century, we started asking questions like, okay, so friend, you've got the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit have you? In um, all this language, baptism of the Spirit, fullness of the Spirit, going on to Christian perfection, uh, you'll, all, we, we wrote all those hymns such as, I surrender all. I lay it all on the altar. Uh, we wrote all that kind of hymns because we, we, we pretty much knew just Christian experience. People can come to Christ and they can express faith in Christ. But yeah, it may be a while for they give their pocketbook to Jesus. It may be a while for they give their entertainment to Jesus. You know, so you know, so there, there has to be that growth in grace. But and we've always said that there has to be that growth in grace. But what we Methodist types started saying was there could be a second dramatic experience in your life. You know, after conversion, then a point where you, you take a major leap. We even talked. We called it entire sanctification. That's what we talked about whenever you laid it all on the altar. That, that's entire sanctification. If you look at old Methodist records, they'll talk about here in this annual conference, they'll talk about our, in our churches, uh, they would report at quarterly conference. they say, we had a revival last month, had 35 people saved and 42 people sanctified. And what that meant in Methodist language was some people came to Christ, other people, other people accepted Jesus as Lord. They wanted to give Jesus not just their sins, but all their life. And, and so we started talking about this major, there could be something beyond conversion. So we Methodists started talking about that. So now, of course, there's some people who thought we just had lost our minds. That, you know, they didn't like getting Jesus in installments in any form or fashion. But we started that language. And, um, you know, that's why the holiness movement came out of us because we saw conversion, and then we saw something subsequent where you take a major growth toward holiness. Um, so we birthed the holiness movement in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. Um, by, the, by the late, this is the way church history happens, by the late 1800s, uh, even the holiness movement seemed to have lost some of its fire. So what usually happens when a movement loses its fire, and this has been 2,000 years of this tradition, then other groups pop up to try to restore the fire. So in the late, in the late 1800s, out of, out of the holiness movement, you had like Church of Nazarene, you had Church of God, you had Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. The, those were denominational groups who, again, emphasized something subsequent to um, conversion that, um, that we use different language, baptism, the spirit, holiness, uh, going on to greater degrees of holiness, whatever. Then um, on January the 1st, 1900, now there are precursors to this, but it's a nice story to tell because it feels so supernatural. On January the 1st, 1900, 
you know, I don't know that God was paying that much attention to the way we keep our calendar, but on January the 1st, 1900, at um, Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, uh, there was a pastor that led that Bible school by the name of Charles Parham. As they ushered in the new year and they were a good Methodist holiness fashion, they were saying to God, I want all that God has for me. If there's more, I want the more. Um, and it was on that January the 1st, 1900, at Topeka Bible College with Charles Parham, that a lady named Agnes, I can think of her last name, a lady named Agnes, um, yielded to the Spirit to such an extent she started speaking in tongues. And that's when we sort of date, that's the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, within a few years, there was a major, major revival in Los Angeles called the Zusa Street Revival. Uh, it was a little fascinating to me is um, uh, the, the long-term series of meetings that took place at the Zusa Street, the building that they used was literally an abandoned Methodist church. Uh, but a great revival went on there. It went on for months. Um, uh, it went on for months. The newspapers watched it because one of the most amazing things at that point in 1905, 1906, I think it was that round, it, it, was, it was integrated. It was an integrated series of revival services. And that just shocked the people in Los Angeles. That's where Azusa Street is. Shocked the people in Los Angeles. But that's the Azusa Street revival. Out of that came the, even a furtherance of the Pentecostal movement. And out of that became uh, the, the birth of Pentecostal denominations. All of a sudden, you don't have just holiness churches. You've got Pentecostal holiness churches. So that's the Pentecostal movement. Uh, it tended to create new denominations. Uh, everyone else that were not part of those Pentecostal churches just sort of looked at it and thought, this is strange. We don't know what to do with this. Um, that went on for years. When I was growing up, don't mean to offend anybody, in the church I was growing, in which I was raised, uh, we looked at those people, and they because they weren't us. We called them holy rollers. We talked about women who had glory buns. Y'all know what glory buns are? If you don't know, go Google them. I grew up around some glory buns. Not in my church or my family, but they did it. You know, they were the step beneath the church I grew up in. Anyway, so that, that was kind of the old, you know, Pentecostalism was developing, and then there were those who weren't Pentecostals. And um, what really, and this gets to be very significant when you look, you have to deal with this before you can deal with 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, if you want to apply it to today. I grew up in a church that was um, cessationist. That was officially the theology of the church that, yeah, there were some pretty freaky supernatural stuff that went on in the first century with the apostles. They were healing. They were raising the dead. They were speaking in tongues. There was all kinds of miracles. We've read the book of Acts. You can't miss them there. You know, the shadow of Paul would fall on people and they would be healed physically. Yeah, we all read that. The whole Christian church knows it's in there. But what we did for a long time was say that all ceased, it all stopped when the New Testament was complete, when the canon was complete. That's cessationism. Um, it's hard. You don't have a lot of true cessationist churches now since the 1970s, 1980s.
But I grew up in a church that believed in cessationism. So in other words, if you start doing any of that freaky stuff, it wasn't, I, I, I theologically said it wasn't of God. So who did that leave? It was of the devil. So that's how theologically we dealt with people doing stuff that we weren't used to. Well, let me tell you what happened in the 1950s, though. That's why you kind of enter a watershed by 1970s. The first wave of the Spirit is that birth of Pentecostalism. Azusa Street, Parham, Topeka, Kansas. The second wave of the Holy Spirit was the charismatic movement. Only thing charismatic means, that's a biblical term. Charismata means gifts. There is no such thing, really, technically, as a non-charismatic Christian. Unless there's just a Christian out there that has absolutely no gifts from God. And God promises he gives, he's given us all gifts. So there's technically no such thing as a non-charismatic Christian. But what happened in the 50s, um, what we mean by charismatic renewal is this. Up to that point, Pentecostals are over here doing their own thing. And we all do about the holy rollers. We all... I still remember my father telling me stories about how people up in the mountains, he would hear about them, it wasn't his church, but they would get filled with the Spirit and they would jump stiff-legged in the sanctuary. Yeah, that was those people. Anyway, that was the early Pentecostals. And there they, they was some wild experiences. By the way, if you read about early Methodists, we had some wild experiences in camp meetings too. We barked like dogs. That was, you know... Some people didn't understand that in the 1830s, but we did that in the 1830s. But anyway, so that's Pentecostals. And what happened in the 1950s and 60s was Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopal priest in Van Nuys, California, an Episcopal parish of about 2,600 um, people. Van Nuys, California is, is not an impoverished area. It was a very upper-class Episcopal church in Van Nuys, California. And Dennis Bennett on Palm Sunday in 1960, this is some of the stuff going on in the 50s. In 1960, Palm Sunday, Father Dennis Bennett got in the pulpit of his congregation and said, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit and I speak in tongues. Well, he ended up having to find another church. <laughs> he spent the rest of his ministry at another St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Seattle. He's deceased now. But Dennis Bennett, we marked that date as what happened in beginning at that point was the birth of the charismatic renewal movement. Basically, charismatics are Pentecostals in traditional denominations. That's why you got Pentecostal denominations, but then you can have charismatic Methodists, charismatic Episcopalians, char the largest group of charismatics in the world is in the Roman Catholic Church. They have mega uh, charismatic conferences, the Vatican. Because all of us back in the 70s, um, I say all of us, all of us mainline, old line, traditional churches, United Methodist, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian. We all kind of passed legislation back in the 70s saying, you know, this is what we accept about the charismatic renewal movement. This is where we want to raise some cautions. But, so the charismatic renewal movement is basically Pentecostalism that, that made it into the mainline churches. That was the second wave of the Holy Spirit. We're living in the third wave, what's referred to as the third wave. I mean, all categories have problems, but it's just hard to teach without categories. The third wave of the Holy Spirit that began in the 1970s, 1980s looks like this. And probably everybody in this room is what you all are. We're all participating in the third wave of the Holy Spirit. Our United Methodist hymnal now, which was produced right around the year 1990. My wife says I can't call it new anymore since both my associates are younger than the hymnal. 
Can't call that new anymore. But with that new hymnal that we still have, if you look at that hymnal, there's what is called praise choruses in there. There's a John Wimber hymn in there, Spirit Song. You know it? That Spirit Song. I'll let the Son of God unfold you with his that Spirit Song. It's in our hymn now. It's been there since 1990. John Wimber was one of the founders of the Charismatic Renewal Movement with the church out in uh, California. It, he founded the Vineyard Movement. And there are vineyard churches now. Um, so the third wave is after the Pentecostal movement, then after the Charismatic Movement, third wave is all of us calmed down. And all of us started appropriate. We all started singing the same stuff. We have healing services in the United Methodist Book of Worship now, right? For those of you at Wesley, you see it every Wednesday night in Vespers. We, we've had healing services in the United Methodist hymnal uh, since, since 1991, United Methodist Book of Worship. So the third wave is kind of everybody doing everything. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, oh gosh, 50 years ago, in the 70s, if I would have sung John Wimber hymn, yeah, PBRC would have called me up that week. Because, you know, at that point, charismatic was... Was, was scaring people, frightening people, is splitting churches. Charismatics thought they were better than non-charismatics. Non-charismatics thought charismatics were weird. You know, it was not good in the 70s and the 80s. In the 80s, things calmed down. By, by 1990, we produced our book of worship and our hymnal where we're all doing the same stuff, singing the same stuff now, and nobody walks out on me. If we, if we do praise chorus now in our hymnal, we got He is Lord. Our hymnal's got age on it. But He is Lord is in the hymnal. Um, you know, there's a lot of praise choruses in the hymnal now, but the Spirit Song is the most significant by John Wimber. You know, no message is going to walk out now. You're fine with Spirit Song, talking about asking the Holy Spirit to come fill you. So the third wave has been this movement of um, everybody calming down and saying, okay, whatever the Holy Spirit has for us, we're, we're, we're okay with it. You know, uh, we've all matured. You know, and this is what this, we're going to start heading toward 1 Corinthians now. The problem in Corinth was they were very much a charismatic congregation. Gifts of the Spirit all over the place. Just like you see in the early church in the book of Acts. Gifts of the Spirit all over the place. Some of the, now I know nobody in this room understands this. And you don't know anybody like this. And it doesn't reflect any of the churches you know. But sometimes Christian people can be the meanest people you can run across. <laughs> Even spirit-filled. So what was happening in Corinth was the gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues, particularly speaking in tongues for Corinth, was dividing the church. People who spoke in tongues thought they were better than people who didn't speak in tongues. So Paul has to write to the church of Corinth and help them understand. He's going to talk about nine specific gifts of the Spirit. Um, here in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, again, to connect all this together, the first question you have to ask is, does this stuff still happen? Yes or no? Um, old line cessationists said, no, it doesn't happen. So if you do it, it's of the devil, so stop it. It, it ceased with the New Testament. There's almost no, there's still some, by the way, Bob Jones University, there's still some cessationists out there. It's just hard because we've all known really good Christian people evidence gifts of the Spirit now that we aren't willing to say they're of the devil. I'll never forget Mrs. Bumgardner. 
I was, um, I was first year college student doing youth ministry in a Presbyterian church. Now, if you think Methodist or Frozen Chosen, Presbyterian can... I know, but you, you hung out in the Presbyterian Church for a while. I mean, if you think we're staid and conservative and, you know, sometimes if, you know, if a tear shows in my eye, I'm having a major religious experience. I mean, that's a message. Well, anyway, the first church I worked in was a Presbyterian church, which is even more so. And uh, Miss Bumgarden was a member of that church. And I remember Miss Bumgarden, who was your sweet, typical, stereotypical, older matriarch of the church. And I remember her telling me, and I'm sure she's doing it because I was, I was in college heading into ministry. I was very influential in a very formative time in my life. She told me that she had a prayer language. She prayed in tongues. Uh, and we'll talk about that because it goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, there's two kinds of tongues. There's tongues where God speaks to a congregation. And then there's prayer language. We, a lot of us think we see both being referenced in 1 Corinthians. Prayer language doesn't have to have an interpreter. The other kind of gifts of tongues does have to have an interpreter. And I remember when Mrs. Bungard, who I'd never, I never heard it, never saw it. She, she by the way, John Wesley was different. Remember, I kind of said all this stuff started with Mr. Wesley. John Wesley said the stuff. He looked around and said, okay, yeah, we don't quite look like the book of Acts. But he never said it ceased. What Wesley said was if the stuff ceased, it's because we got spiritually weak. We became too captured by culture. It wasn't that God didn't want us to heal the sick. It was just we got too weak spiritually to do that. So, uh, so Wesley accepted the gift of tongues. He, and by the way, I do agree with this, I think it's something better for private prayer and private practice. And that's going, again, that's going to go back to 1 Corinthians because it was dividing the church. But that's why if you go to a charismatic or Pentecostal setting and in worship you hear people praying in tongues, that's the prayer language. That's not the gift of tongues that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. But anyway, like with Ms. Bumgarner, I could have never said that sweet old lady was delusional, neurotic, or of the devil. I had to do something with that. But in the last 50 years, since Dennis Bennett in 1960, since Azusa in 1905, 1906, we've run across a lot of really good people that um, the Spirit's doing stuff in their life. And that's why basically all of your mainline churches, including Roman Catholic, what we've said since the 1970s is um, this is of God, don't, you know, and Paul makes it so clear in 1 Corinthians, everybody doesn't have all gifts. Everybody doesn't have all fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit are two different things. Um, we're talking about gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. Everybody obviously doesn't have all of them. Um, so it should, you know, it is a gift from God, so it shouldn't make you proud or boastful if you have any of it anyway. Uh, so it shouldn't be divisive. So we've all sort of calmed down now in the last 50 years since the 70s. And, you know, we say, uh, uh, and this almost goes back to Wesley, promote not, prohibit not. Um, I don't, you know, you don't push it, but you don't stop it. That was sort of Wesley's practice. 
you know, I'm sure stuff went on in his early Methodist gatherings that he rolled his Oxford University eyes at. But he was not willing to say, that's not of the Spirit, don't do that. He was a little unique in his day. And that's why all this stuff traces all of its roots back to the Western Revival. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 12, your first question is, does any of that stuff Paul's talking about, or the book of Acts, but it's usually book of Acts, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, can that stuff happen today? Almost everybody says yes now. Even people that it makes them nervous, theologically, they say yes. You still got Bob Jones University out there that says it doesn't happen, so it happens to you, it's the devil. But other than a few small groups like that, everybody says, okay, it happens. So uh, now, which makes it a perfect time to go back to 1 Corinthians. And hear all of Paul's, you know, Paul, at one point Paul said, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but it's important to go back and hear 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, to hear the wisdom and the cautions, both, in regards to the gifts of the Spirit. So um, um, I, I'm pretty much part of the modern consensus, which is an ancient consensus, that I'm not in the practice of telling the Holy Spirit what the Holy Spirit can and cannot do. You know, I, 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 can't, I, I can't say, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that in the year 2021. Now, we used to do some of that stuff in the body of Christ, but we don't. Most of us refuse to do that now. So we say, let's talk about Christian maturity. Let's talk about biblical, um, scriptural, traditional theology and see how we can, how we can glorify God. If it doesn't glorify God, then you shouldn't be doing it anyway. But how can whatever glorify God? So, so I'm going to give you permission, like most people today, when, when, we, when we look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, um, find yourself in there. You know, um, don't, don't relegate it to something that would have happened in the first century but can't happen today. Because I, you know, there's the bulk of world Christianity in its growth today, particularly south of the equator. We have a church in Chile. We have a denomination in Chile called the Pentecostal Methodist Church. That name would scare people here. But they might as well call themselves that in Chile because that's the way they act. That's the way they function. That's the way the worship is. Um, anyway, so with that being said, now, go to the text. This is where we'll stop at today. This just takes me back to the list. There are three lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Maybe four. But there's one in Romans, one in Ephesians, one in 1 Corinthians, and a little piece of a list in, in one of the Petrine letters. Um, the reason the other list, this is the most famous list in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, the reason the list are in, important, if you put them all together, no two lists are identical. Paul lists nine here, gifts of the Spirit. No two lists are identical. What that's led most of us to conclude is none of these lists are exhaustive. Uh, if you put all four together, you get a pretty full picture of the gifts of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit scatters throughout the body. Um, but these lists aren't exhaustive, which you should believe that theologically because of, for no other reason, the Holy Spirit's very creative. Um, one, 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 I think, well, a lot of us now think, one gift of the Spirit that's never mentioned is, is 
illustrated is never mentioned in any of these lists, but I'm convinced it's a gift of the Spirit, is the gift of intercession. Now, all Christians are called to pray, but I've ran across some people with the gift of intercession in my ministry um, who'd rather pray than go to Disney, who, who seem to see more fruit from their prayer life. I've got four people, and they all happen to be ladies. I, I do think the gift of intercession hangs out with the female gender more than the male. Maybe reasons for that. I've got four ladies scattered throughout the southeast uh, that I've encountered over my life. One of them's praying for me on Monday, one's praying on Tuesday, one's praying on Wednesday, one's praying on Thursday for me. Because there are four people that I believe have the gift of intercession. And I want them praying for me. Um, that gift is never specifically mentioned in the New Testament. But I don't think any of these lists of the gifts of the Spirit are exhaustive. So with that being said, go to, go to 1 Corinthians 12. I just want to show you the list, and we'll stop here. I just want to show you the list. Um, Paul starts off with some stuff in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. Then in verse 12, 4 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Now there are varieties, and the word there actually could be translated dispersals. There are varieties, there are dispersals of gifts, but the same Spirit. So whatever gift you have, it's the same Spirit given it, so don't make it competitive, don't make it boastful. The same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. By the way, as an aside, one thing we Christians have noticed for 2,000 years, uh, the word Trinity does not occur in the New Testament, but we didn't make up the concept. The Catholic Church didn't make us make up the concept. We see Trinitarian theology in the New Testament. We see incipient Trinitarian theology in the New Testament. That verse I just read you, verses 4, 4, 5, and 6, those verses, notice Spirit, Lord, God. Did you catch that when I read it? That's the kind of text that led the church over a couple hundred years to, to hone in and develop a theology of the Holy Spirit. It's just like in the Great Commission, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. For a strict monotheistic Jew to be um, saying God's not unusual, maybe Spirit's not, but to throw Jesus in that mix, uh, yeah, all that's incipient. Um, um, incipient Trinitarianism. Anyway, this is one of those verses, just like the Great Commission, where you see a reference in, in close proximity, Spirit, Lord, God. Anyway, didn't want you to miss that. So look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here comes the nine gifts of the Spirit as Paul lists them here. Um, again, not exhaustive. It changes in the four list in the New Testament. And we, we'll talk about these some more. Verse 8, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Sometimes that's referred to as the, as the, as the gift of wisdom. Now again, gifts of the Spirit in Christian theology is not just natural abilities. Everybody has natural, I hope, everybody has natural abilities. We all have natural abilities that God can uh, develop in us. But Paul here is talking about specific gifts that God gives through the Spirit for the good of the body. Um, we, and we'll have more time to talk about these. Get, so here's, the, here's, here's the first one mentioned in verse 8. Uh, utterance of wisdom or word of wisdom. Another one is an utterance or word of knowledge. Uh, that's receiving supernatural knowledge or supernatural wisdom. 
that's a gift from the Spirit. Now, I hope you know the difference between wisdom and knowledge. We can talk about that maybe later. Um, so there's two of the gifts. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Well, we all know all Christians have to have faith. You don't come to Christ without faith. Um, but evidently, there can be the spiritual gift of faith. Kind of like intercession. Every Christian prays, but some people just really have the gift of intercession. Evangelism. We all should be leading people to Jesus, right? Billy Graham can read the phone book, and he, that would lead people to Jesus. I mean, he had the gift of evangelism. So the gift of faith here is not just faith. So here's the gift of faith being made. This is the superabounding faith. Some people can just move mountains by faith, to quote somebody we're all fond of. Um, but yes, that's the faith. To another, gifts of healing. Notice gifts there is in plural. The gift of healing comes in many forms or fashion. The gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. Those would be um, mighty acts of God, maybe factoring out the healings. But you see the gifts of miracles. To another prophecy, you're going to learn in the next two chapters, this is Paul's favorite. If you got to pursue one of the gifts, this is the one you need to get. Prophecy in the New Testament is not predicting the future. That's Jeannie Dixon. Prophecy in the New Testament is like prophecy in the Old Testament. is speaking the mind of God, which may have something to do with the future. But we'll have a lot of chance to talk about what the New Testament and Old Testament means by prophecy. But Paul's going to tell you that's his favorite, that's his favorite gift. Go after, go after that one. Uh, then he says, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. That's a spiritual gift of discernment. Sometimes it takes a gift to know if something's of God or something's of the devil. Uh, that's the gift of discernment. Uh, then, and if you keep on going, uh, that's the ability to distinguish between spirits, gifts of discernment. To another, various kinds of tongues. We'll have a lot of opportunity to talk about that. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But they, as well, you see the list of nine. And then he concludes this section. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually. So here he talks about nine gifts. There are three other lists. There's some other gifts mentioned. Some of these are duplicated in the other list. So you see gifts of revelation here. You see gifts of power here. And you see gifts of speech here. Um, we, we'll go back next week because our time's up. We'll go back next week and kind of talk about what those gifts are. Obviously, these were all operating in Corinth. And what Paul's having to write to them about is they were becoming matters of competition, boastfulness, becoming matters of division. Um, people thought, my gift's better than your gift. They thought, one, it, probably, it looks like what was going on is um, they were over-elevating the gift of tongues. And Paul doesn't say that doesn't exist. He just says, let me, run, let me tell you how to view the gift of tongues. Now, you notice, I keep saying chapters 12 through 14. Here's three chapters on the gifts of the Spirit that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians. I'm not good at math, but I, I know that between 12 and 14, there is chapter 13. You know what chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is, right? The great love chapter. The whole point of that is you need to operate these gifts out of love. Because we Christians, we're so creative. We can take great gifts from God and turn them into mean things that hurt other people, that create divisions that feed our pride, that feed up, feeds our boastfulness. That's what's going on in Corinth. So Paul's going to give you three chapters. 
obviously for most people, they, they know chapter 12 is about gifts. They know chapter 14 is about gifts. But it's easy to fit chapter 13 in the middle of this conversation, that great hymn to love. So um, he's going to talk about these three gifts. That's probably plenty for today. Um, that's kind of a catch-up for everybody, to give you a little bit of history and to give you a little bit of intro to 1 Corinthians, which would get us in a place next week. We can go, we'll start back through the text. I, I do want to say a little more about each of these nine gifts, and then, then you'll see what Paul does with it. Um, I gave out some prayers when I came in. What I do need you to do, because we try to be good citizens, um, I'm going, when I leave, I'm going to go back here to this table. I'm going to lay these prayers out. Please take one with you because we'll use these prayers um, each week. I'll also lay my legal pad back here um, so that you can just give me your name and your email address because um, we're good citizens. You know, if I discover tomorrow that I've got, you know, a case of COVID from Mars or something, I need to email y'all and tell y'all that. Um, so I need your, we need to know who's present in the room. So, um, but I gave out some of these prayers. If you'll just grab one, if I, if I didn't hand it to you, look on with somebody. This is a historic prayer to the Holy Spirit. It's historically a prayer that's used uh, before study, oftentimes in Christian tradition. Uh, some, of the, some of you will recognize this prayer from other places. Uh, let's, let's pray it together. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. And I'll hang around, I'd love to hang around and answer questions about gifts of the Spirit for the next three hours. So I'll hang around, but otherwise, go in peace. Visit with each other, just don't share disease or anything. <laughs> Let me put this back in the back.
Yes, it is. Good morning. How it's been, brother. 